Is there any way we can have an honest conversation? Nobody seems to want to listen. I know what I want to say, but everyone will get mad. I just don't want to get into it. How am I supposed to know if I'm right or wrong? I'm so tired of talking about this. Nobody knows what they're talking about. I feel so misunderstood. It feels like for the last uh, many, many years, there have been times when it's been really hard to use the J word in public settings. You could talk about spirituality. You could refer to a higher power. You might even use the name of God as long as you didn't mind somebody with a somewhat accusatory question asking you, who's God? (laughs) Whose God are you talking about? But if you were a follower of Christ who was speaking at a high school graduation, or you were perhaps um, an athlete being interviewed after a Super Bowl win, uh, or you were somebody that had gone through a profound time of tragedy and loss, and some reporter put a microphone in front of your face and said, you know, how are you making it through? You might safely talk about the role of your parents and your mentors and your teachers and your coaches and that kind of thing. But if you said, it's Jesus, it's Jesus that has been the source of my gifts and my life, it's Jesus that is my hope in these circumstances, it's Jesus, you could expect at least some of the people listening to you to wince and maybe quickly change the topic of conversation or maybe even swing the camera away. For many people outside of the church, Jesus has been the J word. I think we've entered into an interesting new era now. I I think there's now a new J word. I think there is a word that is as prone to create controversy and, and separation between people as the J word, meaning Jesus, has been. And it seems to me that like the name of Jesus, this other J word tends to flood people with sort of emotional reactions, with images and associations that either inspire them or inflame them in not a good way. The very mention of this word these days uh, quickly changes a conversation that was rather congenial into kind of an us versus them thing. And strangely, this other J word is as present in the Bible as the name of Jesus is. And it is as associated with the heart of God as Jesus is. In fact, Jesus and this other word are profoundly related, as I hope you'll come to see. If Jesus is the word that it's hard to talk about outside the church these days, justice is the word it's hard to talk about inside the church. Do you know what I mean? inside of families, inside of work group circles, but especially, ironically, inside of the church. How many of you, I wonder, winced when I used the word justice here? How many of you would prefer, if I was moving on to a different topic, how happy would you be if I decided that, no, let's just talk about Jesus today, 
And how many of you are actually encouraged that we're using this word here? Any way you cut it, the subject of justice is hard to talk about these days, partly because there's just so much disagreement over what the word even means. And, and for, for, for some of us, justice feels like it's at its best about law and order. It's about aligning things with what is right in our minds. It means putting more resources into good law enforcement. It may mean uh, paying more attention to, to policing law enforcement, so it is always good law enforcement. It means exercising more control at the border or, or, more, or, or more clearly defining the boundaries of what is right and wrong and what's good and what's not good in the face of all of the people out there who do use, misuse power or take advantage of other people. Justice can mean, for those of us who, who, who resonate with the law and order end of this spectrum, it means holding people accountable for when they do wrong. And, and it means setting up society in such a way that people do get rewarded when they do right or when they do good and are not penalized or, or, or attacked simply because they were working hard. For some of us, justice means respecting the rules of life that make thriving possible and living into them. Things like hard work and personal responsibility and, and private property and stable families. How many of you can resonate with, with that sort of law and order sense of justice? For other people, that may be valuable, but where their heart tends to go is more of a notion of justice as about resourcing and repair. About resourcing and repair. It, it, justice requires facing where human sin has done damage and maybe damaged to whole groups of people. It involves looking at history. It involves studying the systems and the structures of society that perhaps innocently, maybe not innocently, have nonetheless left certain people with far fewer of the educational, material, relational resources than most of us who are flourishing have had along the way. Justice is about confessing where there's not been equal protection under the law at all times. It's about working together to ensure that people actually have the resources they need to flourish. Justice in this view has to do with repairing what's gotten broken in the basic framework of opportunity that people need to be fully successful. Can any of you resonate with that understanding of justice. Now I want to, we've got some folks awake in the back. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not so sure about down here, but that's a good section. The law and order theme and the, and the resource and repair theme don't need to be enemies. Okay. They have become enemies today for some reason. They do not need to be enemies. They can be part of a whole. They're part of a continuum that it's really helpful to examine and value as we try to understand what's not working so well in our world today and how it gets fixed. 
And I'm guessing that when we step back from the fray, most reasonable people will find elements at both ends of this continuum to really resonate with and care about and think is important to the whole framework of life. The problem right now is that we almost never get to step back from the fray. I mean, we are constantly being hammered by voices that emphasize one end of the definition of justice or the other end of the definition of justice to the exclusion of the other end and, and just try and jam that end down our throats. That's what it often feels like to people as they describe their experience of life today. And what makes it even harder is that there are some really extreme versions uh, of these ends of the continuum. Whether it's critical race theory or white supremacy, there are these extremists who, who, who so understandably upset us that we, that we actually stop even looking for a credible balance. We just disassociate ourselves from that end of the spectrum. We're just sort of turned off. Then along come the voices of the red and blue channels around us all the time who tend to devalue or demonize people who are simply trying to make sure that the other side doesn't get lost. The other part of the spectrum of what justice means doesn't get lost. No wonder the justice word, the J word, is hard to talk about. I really pray, however, that it will not get lost in the church. We can't give up this word. We can't give up this word. When I was a, a seminary student back in the 1800s, <laughs> I had a professor by the name of Tom Long. And uh, Tom said something that I will never, ever forget. In fact, it's seared into my brain the day he said it, and I've thought of it often through the years. He says, the church is the language school of the kingdom of God. The church is the language school of the kingdom of God. And what Dr. Long was really trying to say is that there, there are these words that, that um, get hijacked in, in, in their usage over time. Words like faith and hope and love and many others can over time change in their meaning or, or get distorted or disfigured in their meaning or get used for partisan purposes and they lose the really robust, rich meaning they once had that God means for those words to have. And the church is a place that has to fight for the meaning of those words. It has to try and recover and, and, and keep recontenting those words that, that, that are expressing something significant about what God longs to see for the people of this world. And justice is clearly one of those words. Ultimately, I think the topic of justice requires going back and really looking at how God viewed it. It means kind of setting aside the repugnant and upsetting associations that we may have with that word and going back and saying, okay, let me just clean slate here. Let me just recover a meaning, a sense of what the biblical justice concept is all about. And so today and next week when my good friend Nicholas Pierce is here, Nick 
Nick, for those who don't know him, is a professor of, uh, at Kellogg School of Management in Northwestern. He's a pastor at one of the great city churches of Chicago. He's been on this platform a couple of other times before. Nick will talk next week. I'll come back the final week. And we're going to try and put our arms together around the meaning of justice, of biblical justice. Uh, and, and I'm going to ask you to, to enter into this uh, conversation with some trust. I want to invite you to sort of to unclench what may be the tight grip we have on the storyline that we have always held to or come to hold to around what justice really means. And I want to invite you to fix your eyes upon Jesus instead. There was an old praise chorus that talked about, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim by the light of his glory and grace. I want you to invite you to look to Jesus with me. What does Jesus have to say about this beautiful, inspiring, life-changing, world-shaping possibility that is God's vision of justice? Can you go on that journey with me? Will you, will you, will you try and go on this journey with me? The journey starts at the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. And if, um, if this is your first time back since Christmas, you, you're very close to this because you were in chapter 2 of Luke at Christmas. I know it's not your first time back, but... Luke chapter 2 is all about the events of the, of the birth of Jesus, and then it just the video just sweeps forward, and chapter 3 of Luke's gospel opens up with the start of the public ministry of Jesus. And Jesus is now 30 years old. And, and, and Jesus um, is burst from obscurity onto the public scene, and it's really important to notice what happens right here, because in the Bible, things that happen in the beginning, at the start, are very often cues and clues to first principles, to, to um, major ideas, big ideas or major priorities. Uh, think of, of the Genesis story. In the beginning, God created. And then we're given a picture of, these, of God creating a relationship between uh, human beings or between him and human beings and human beings with each other and human beings and the garden and the creatures, you know, and, and, and sets boundaries. And these kind of ideas are meant to be carried forward by human beings if they want flourishing. Well, the start of the public ministry of Jesus also has some first principles that are really worth paying attention to. God wants us to get these, I'm convinced. So the gospel describes the start, and the start is this vision of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River. And the really key part is, is as his cousin John is baptizing Jesus, um, the people there get this vision of the Holy Spirit coming down upon Jesus. And then we're told, and I quote, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, in you I am well pleased. In you I am well pleased. Now this is hugely important because Jesus is going to be able to handle a lot of the challenges and the tough choices that he's going to have to make out of the strength of the identity he knows he has as a child, a beloved child of the Heavenly Father. Jesus is going to play all kinds of roles in his life. He's going to be a carpenter. He'll be a rabbi. He'll be a healer. He'll be a preacher. He'll, he'll be a prisoner. 
in jail, a convicted criminal. Jesus will be a guest at events. He'll be a host at events. Jesus will play all these different roles, but his core identity will remain the same no matter what role he's in. He will always remember that he is a beloved child, the beloved son of his father in heaven. By the way, that truth is meant for you and me too. We are meant to be really clear about our identity. The Bible says, and I quote John, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. And what that means is that when you invite Jesus to be the center of your life, when he stops being just a spoke out there, an option, an accessory, a resource you plug into and plug out of, but instead you invite him to come be the center of your life, then, then you become one of God's children in that very um, specific kind of sense. In the kingdom of God, there are no identity politics as we have today. A lot of the struggles of our time is, are all about slicing and dicing people into all of these, you know, categories. And it's, it's not all bad because I think, you know, God has made a world that is wonderfully uh, full of multiplicity and variation and diversity. And it's, and it's a great thing. It's a beautiful, how boring this world would be if it was all gray, if everybody thought exactly the same way, if everybody had the same monotone voice, right? It'd be a terrible world. This diversity is a great thing. And we're to, to seek to understand and appreciate that range. There's a lot in the teaching of the Apostle Paul about the body of Christ and all of the members and what each of them bring. This is a beautiful thing. But we're always meant to do that in light of our understanding of the central truth about people, their central identity as children as people that are part of the whole human family that God loves and sent Jesus to die for and, and cares about the future of, we're always meant to look at people and ourselves through the lens of that fundamental identity. We no longer regard people from a merely human point of view, says St. Paul. But we see them. We see them as these eternal beings. C.S. Lewis had something to say about that. We we reverence other people, whatever race or color or economic background or ethnic identity or life experience they may have, we reverence them and we treat them with respect, uh, not always because they behave well, but because God has made them. And we, we treasure the things that God makes. So that's how Jesus followers view the subject of identity. And that's important as you go around into these conversations that are so difficult in so many areas. Remember, who I, I'm a child of God. And even though the person in front of me is not behaving like one right now, I'm going to try and treat that person that way too. The story goes on from there. And we're told that fortified by this deep understanding of his identity as God's beloved child, Jesus, and I quote, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted and tested by the devil. Now, how many of you ever heard, have heard of the, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness? Just raise your hand if that's ever, yeah. So a lot of us have at least heard generally about this. I want you to listen to this 
um, with fresh ears. Because in a nutshell, what happens in this encounter between uh, Jesus and the devil is that Satan calls Jesus to make three things his priority. He tests him and to see if he can get Jesus to make any one or all of these three things his priority. Satan calls Jesus to prioritize, first of all, material security. Jesus is hungry. He has been there for 40 days. And Satan says, uh, you know, change that stone into bread and see, take care of yourself. Uh, and the second temptation, uh, Satan brings Jesus to a place where he can see all of the kingdoms of the world. And this temptation is about earthly power. And Satan says, bow down to me. All these kingdoms can be yours. And the third temptation, Jesus is taken up to the top of the temple, and, they, and he can look down, and the temple courts are filled, te teeming with masses of people coming to, to worship at the temple. And Satan says, throw yourself down off this pinnacle, and the angels will come and, and catch you up. And, and the temptation there is towards uh, public status, because Jesus would be seen as being taken care of by God in this special way, and that he would be, have, have more, he'd be famous instantly. Um, security, power, status. These are the three temptations. And what's ironic about this is that Jesus has all of those things already. There is nobody in the universe that is more secure than the, than the Son of God in eternity. There's no one who has greater power. There's nobody that enjoys greater status than the one who's being worshipped by flawless angels around the clock. Jesus has these things. They're his by right. He could say, yeah, bring it on, bring it on. That's mine by right. But in every instance, Jesus says, no. I will not prioritize those things. I will put God's word and God's way First, you can read about this in Luke chapter 4. I will put God's word and God's way first. And then through the rest of the gospel story, we watch as Jesus keeps doing it. He makes the choice again and again and again. When, 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 it, when it would be easy to focus on himself, he, he chooses to use his security, his bodily strength. He gives his own body up. Uh, his power... And, and his status, he uses it to advance the purposes of God. He sees the, these things as tools for advancing the purposes of God, to lift up other people. So I think this is another one of those beginning, in the beginning kind of patterns that we're meant to pick up on. We're meant to, first of all, remember our identity, wherever we go. And secondly, we're supposed to remember how to hold security, power, and status gently. Because if you think about it, those are the topics that are always in the swirl around conversations about justice. You know, will I lose my security, my power, my status if I go too far in this direction or other people come too far in this direction? Will I, you know, do, 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 those, do I really care about other people's security uh, power and status. You know, these are the themes that are wrapped up in a lot of the struggles of our time. So the question, I guess, to each of us is, when I'm tested as to how I view those things, will I remember who I am? 
Because if my identity is as a beloved child of God who knows how much my Father in heaven loves me unimpeachably, I have nothing to prove, and I'm around people who I want to know that they are also beloved children of God that matter in this world, will I tend to use my privileges, my, my status, my security, my power, will I tend to use those things mainly towards myself or will I be inclined to use them more as tools to try and advance God's purposes, the lives of others in the world? What does that look like in your life now? How does that work for you um, right now? Luke's gospel goes on to say that Jesus then returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Jesus did not grow up in Bethlehem. He grew up in the, in the city of Nazareth. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. And the synagogue was the Jewish version of church, the local church, as was his custom, we're told. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And I want to pause right there for just a moment because this is a really big moment. I mean, you think it was big when Jesus was in the manger, Right, and the wise men came. You know, I would think that's big. That's a wow, they came, these kings from the east came and, you know, worshiped him. Yeah. This is a bigger moment, this moment we're seeing in Nazareth. Because Jesus is starting the public work that will make him the most talked about and revered and influential figure in human history. Think about this. He's about to enter into that movement. Jesus is going to reveal the nature of God's kingdom in a world obsessed with human empires. Jesus is going to give his life on a cross in just a couple of years for the forgiveness of the sins of anybody that puts their trust in him. Jesus is going to demonstrate the power of God to overcome even death, which we all fear. And which takes people we love. We worry we'd never see them. He's going to show that God has a power to overcome even death. Jesus is going to start a church, a, a community of faith, that will become the longest running continuous corporation in the world. With branch offices on every continent and in most towns. And that will exert, I mean, we talk about Amazon. <laughs> Nothing compared to the corporation Jesus founded the body. That means where the word corporation comes from the word body, corpus. Uh, Jesus is about to do that. He, he, he is going to give his very first sermon in his home church to inaugurate all of this. I think back 25 years ago now when I came to give my first sermon in this church. I was uh, 37 years old. So I had a few more years of experience than Jesus. Yeah. Um, and I thought long and hard about what I would say that day. Because I really wanted to make sure that I started out, you know, with a message that really reflected what I believe God's heart was all about and what people would be uh, buying into if they selected me as a pastor. And I had to preach a sermon and they were going to vote on me. They did vote on me. 
after that sermon. So I was thinking long and hard about that message, exactly what I wanted to say that would reveal where I hoped we would be going together. And I, I remember the morning vividly because I drove over here. I came down 31st Street and I pulled over just outside the parking lot here and just stepped out of the car and, and, and threw up in the ditch right out there because I was <laughs> literally so scared. I don't think Jesus was scared when he got up to speak in Nazareth. But I do think he probably gave as much thought as I gave or a lot more to what he would say there that would reveal his heart and what people would be buying into if they chose to follow him. Um, so enrolling the scroll, he found the place where it's written, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor or grace. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Jesus was reading from a couple of different places in uh, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, from chapter 58, from chapter 66. And, and, and these verses that Jesus read from, that we've just read, were commonly understood by Jewish people to be prophecies about the coming Messiah. The coming Messiah would be like this, would do these things. Um, but, but, and so what Jesus was effectively doing was saying, I'm him. The wait is over. I, I've come. What I find interesting is that Jesus chose this particular prophecy about the coming of the Messiah for his inauguration speech. This is what's really fascinating. Um, because the, the, the book of Isaiah alone, plus other parts of the Old Testament, are jammed with prophecies about what to look for, what the character of the Messiah will be like. They, they tell us to look for somebody who's a descendant of King David. Jesus could have spent time talking about his, his, his lineage. Uh, they exhort us to expect somebody who will come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, you know, bringing the role of the kingship of a king on his stallion with the humility of a donkey. Uh, the, the scriptures talked about uh, the, the Messiah as somebody who would be a suffering servant. Go home and read Psalm 22. It describes somebody being crucified. Hundreds of years before the Romans invented it, crucifixion. The Messiah would be crucified. Jesus could have selected from any one of those different texts and said, let's talk about that. This is what's really important. But instead, he picked a passage of Scripture that says that the Messiah we are to follow is someone who loves justice. He'll talk about the cross later. He'll talk about being humble later. He'll talk about all those other themes later. He began by saying, don't miss that God's heart is about justice. I'm bringing good news for the poor, says Jesus. I'm bringing good news for people who've messed up so badly they got themselves chucked in prison. 
I'm bringing good news to to people who are blind. I'm going to give sight to the blind. I'm going to be involved in healing people. I'm going to set people free from crushing burdens in life. I'm proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, which was buzz language. Everybody in his crowd understood what that meant. The year of the Lord's favor was a reference to the Jewish tradition called Jubilee. It was a, a commandment God gave to the Jewish people that every so often... They were to proclaim a year in which everybody's debts were forgiven. People who had just amassed huge fortunes and people that had been terribly crushed by debt um, would together find good news. It wouldn't take away the fortunes of the people that had amassed them, but you would lighten up on on the debt written so they had a chance to start again. As far as we know, the Jews never obeyed that commandment. They never held a jubilee year, even though God said, do this, do this, because this is my heart. So Jesus is saying, basically, God has a special heart for people who lack security, power, and status. He, He loves everybody, but he has a particular heart for people who lack security, power, and status. Look who he chose to birth himself through. A woman that lacked security, power, and status. Now, don't get me wrong. God cares about everybody. God cares about the whole enchilada. God cares about the law and order end of justice. He does. You know, he set some boundaries, even in Eden. You know, there are consequences and implications and accountabilities that are very, very important. In fact, in the very first chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, God says, stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. But in the very next clause, God makes it clear. He's also passionate about the ministry of resourcing and repair. He says, defend the oppressed, the crushed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. The the people where the family system has gotten torn apart and the dad's not in the picture anymore. Plead the case of the widow, the single mom, the vulnerable old lady. You know, care about resourcing and repairing those bad situations. Now, I'm almost done, and and I imagine some of you are saying, you know, Dan, I think you've missed the point. (laughs) I mean, I hung around church for a lot of years, Dan. Let me tell you, I've 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 never read it this way. I mean, Jesus wasn't really out to advance justice so much as he was trying to advance spiritual conversion and freedom. Uh, Jesus has come for the poor in spirit. He's come to free people from being prisoners of sin. He's, he's, he's going to give sight to people who are spiritually blind. He's come to, to forgive people's moral debts, not literal debts. And I would say to you, That's true, too. He is just that great and generous. That he cares about the soul as well as the body. And he wants to bless it all. All. And I know that's true because of how Jesus later on, towards the end of his ministry, his public ministry, Matthew chapter 25, describes the acts or behaviors of the people he regards as as his followers, as his sheep, the sheep following the shepherd. 
and how different those behaviors are from those who are goats, who kind of go their own way. And I worked on a farm, and I, that's right. You know, sheep kind of tend to follow, and goats tend to kind of go their own way. Uh, because in Matthew chapter five, 25, Jesus describes these behaviors, and I've got them up on the screen for you. Uh, notice the similarity between the behaviors towards vulnerable people that he says he's come to help in his Nazareth message and the behaviors he says that God is going to reward at the final judgment. Are those spiritual behaviors? Or are those the practical behaviors of people whose spirits have been changed for good so that they start to have a heart for other people like God has? We're going to talk a little bit more about this in the next couple of weeks, but I think there's no way to read the Gospels. There's no way to take the Old Testament prophets seriously or the law there seriously and not come away with the conviction that God is out to redeem bodies and families and systems and cities and societies as well as souls. As well as souls. And those things don't get redeemed easily without reaching the soul. They're, that's very important. In his book, Surprised by Hope, uh, British evangelical scholar N.T. Wright says this, and with this I'll close. God created a good creation. He mourned the fall of humanity. He raised up Israel to model a better way. And then he sent Jesus to set the whole world right. And justice is about setting things right. It's like, it's like taking a broken bone and fixing it, setting it right. Jesus died on the cross to carry out God's justice, his promise to set the world right and to flood the creation with his glory. What right means is that Jesus came for nothing less than to inaugurate the restoration of God's creation to its original glory. He's come to restore what the Hebrews used to call the shalom, the great shalom, the peace and the flourishing that God wants for everybody. Let's be absolutely clear. That kind of project of justice isn't going to happen overnight. It's not going to be brought in by some government or some party or some church initiative. It's not going to happen finally and fully till Jesus comes again. But Jesus came to invite you and me to be part of this amazing movement of law and order, of resource and repair. And we can know the joy of seeing God move through our lives for good in the lives of this world so long as we don't get too uncomfortable even mentioning the J word. Please pray with me. Great God, great God of love and justice, we thank you that you care for life on this planet, that there is no individual no family, no system, no neighborhood or soul that you do not long to lift to its best potential. So as we go on this journey in these days to come to try and understand and try to reflect your heart more fully, break down, we pray, whatever resistances or myths or ways of thinking 
and acting that are not in concert with your spirit. Encourage us with all that you already are doing through us for good. And continue to flow through us, we pray. For we know that in the crushing, in the pressing, in the testing, you are making new wine. That in the soil, we now surrender to you. You are breaking new ground. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.